0: Hello folks, welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi and I'm your host. And I want to explain a little bit about the podcast before we start the show this week. This podcast is an opportunity for me to speak with some of the most interesting people I know that I can find on the internet. So either with amazing talents or achievements or just unbelievable life stories or invaluable insights into areas that they have dedicated their lives to studying. I sit down with these amazing individuals from all across the world. Really, I've talked to people from Slovenia to the Czech Republic to Australia to countries in Africa and South America, uh, really just all over the world. And I try to ask them the questions that will hopefully help you extract something valuable or learn something new or just get inspired by. And I do hope that you do get inspired by these talks with some sort of a call to action Maybe change something that you wanted to change for a while or even just enjoy, you know, detaching from the world for an hour and listening to some great conversations. So whatever it is that you get from this, I do hope that you extract something from it and enjoy the conversations. All these episodes are available on all the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and the rest of them. You can also find the episodes on my website it's just roybensv.com you can find a lot of other information about me there as well from photos to a little bit more insights into who i am if you're interested and you know you can always go to social media i'm on twitter and instagram you can find me there i'm pretty active on both those platforms although the only ones i have and um i try to post regularly so you can stay up to date and also be sure to You know, put your email on the website. Uh, I shoot emails out with updates, news, any new current information that I have will be sent via those emails and social media platforms. So, yeah, make sure you're in the loop. Thanks for tuning in. This week on the podcast, we have Simon Donner. Simon is a scientist, he's also a professor of climatology at the University of British Columbia. And he's been studying climate and climate change effects on society and and environment for a very long time. So uh, I was happy to have him on and discuss this extremely important topic that is often misconstrued and is politically divisive. You'll have lobbyists that go on the news and they'll have these straw man arguments and they are backed by... Billionaires like the Koch brothers and other industries. And they just put out a lot of misinformation and disinformation, skepticism, climate denial. And it's unfortunate because this is something that we really need to educate people and we really need to put out the correct information. And when there is a hint of skepticism, then people, you know, they think, some people at least, that the science isn't settled that there's still some sort of a debate going on. And hopefully the next few years, they'll figure something out. But the reality is, the science is settled. There's no disagreements. Almost 100% of scientists, climate scientists, fully agree on this. And it's been settled for a long, long time. The only people that are putting out disinformation campaigns are people with either ideological or financial incentives to do so. So I was happy... That, that uh, sorry, Simon accepted my invitation to come on the podcast and really dig deep into the topics. You know, usually I, I like to just talk and, and quote unquote shoot the shit for a little bit, but I just wanted to out the gate, just ask so many different questions and try to get you, the listener, as much information as possible from Simon, who again has been studying this and teaching this for a very long time and we did we definitely got into it you know from why climate change is such a hot button topic and so it's and it's so political to to the correlation between financial incentives and switching our grid to renewables and at the end we actually I took about eight headlines that I see are the most common on the internet, the most common, I don't know, misinformation, distant myths, or just flat out lies that are out there, but I'll see them circulating again and again, and people who want to use them, these are usually the eight things that they use. There's a couple of others, but I, these are the ones I see the most. So I wanted to put them forth and let Simon dispel them, debunk them, and just Call them what they are, just flat-out lies, but he explains why they are lies and why they have no grip on reality and why they have just zero facts to back them up. So if you guys want to learn more about climate change, more about the climate science, this is a awesome episode. I myself learned so much. Simon, you know, he does this for a living. He's amazing. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation with him. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. And without further ado, here is Simon Donner. Enjoy the episode, guys. Hey, Simon. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being on the show. I'm uh, really excited. I've been wanting to talk to someone in your field for a very long time. Uh, I think you're the first. Pretty sure you're the first climate scientist I've had on. So I'm super excited about this. Thanks for coming on. Well, I mean, I love talking about it, so it's, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that I feel like a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on, but not everyone's a climate scientist. So you know, you want to go to the source and. For yeah i'm just gonna go right into it usually you know i like to talk but this is just i know we're a little bit short on time and i have so many questions so clim- i feel like climate change and climate science is one of those things where depending on where you are on the political spectrum you either believe in it or you don't right and this doesn't happen for any other science right there's no engineering biochemistry medicine no one's telling their their neurologist no that's fake news that doesn't exist right but for some reason with climate science it's either it's such a hot button topic that it depends on on where you are on the political spectrum right or left it's either the worst you know dire catastrophe you know the, the catastrophe or it doesn't exist it's fake news
1: yeah. And well, it's interesting. There's tons of polling data and public opinion research on this. And most the the people who are saying we don't think it's real, uh, it's a pretty small segment of Americans, actually, and even smaller segment of Canadians where I am. Um, most Americans are somewhere sort of in the kind of what like the muddled middle. You know, they've heard about it, they believe it, but they're kind of curious or maybe you're a little bit dubious about some of the claims. Um, And I think the thing that's really hard for people (laughs) uh, to gather because it's such a politically, you know, economically relevant issue that, you know, because humans, uh, human activities affecting the climate, fossil fuel burnings affecting the climate, what we would need to do about it means a lot of changes in society that it's just one of these, you know, where science intersects with like public life and public policy um, there's all sorts of incentives for people not to believe it. And it's quite natural that that might happen, right? There's all sorts of things. If like you, anything in life, it can happen to scientists as well. If you are told that something you are doing, um, you know, that you need to change your behavior. If you're told you need to that you need to change your behavior, whether you individually or like society as a whole, if you're told you have to change your behavior, um, and doing so goes against some sort of, um, you know, it's a real challenge to you. Often what you're going to do, rather than say, I don't want to change my behavior, you're going to say, I don't even agree with the reason you're telling me to do it. Yeah. Right? So it's like your parents telling you, hey, can you, you know, go take out the garbage? Instead of saying, I don't want to take out the garbage, you're like, why does the garbage need to go out today? <laughs> and so that's kind of what's happening on climate change is people, uh, the the confusion about the science that's out there is, mo- is you know, a lot of it is driven by people not really, not even thinking about the science, they're just thinking about what the implications of the science might be in their lives, right? Because the science of this, I mean, it's not like uh, scientists who do climate change work or um, trained by Al Gore. I mean, it's just physics and chemistry. This stuff is in old textbooks. It's not actually that new, the core of it.
0: At at, at what point actually, because yeah, I I feel like this is something that a lot of people think is new science, but at what point did scientists start to figure it out? It's not recent, it's been a while, right? Yeah,
1: so I mean the thing about science is is that it's like this slow accumulation of knowledge over time, like each of us are just sort of adding bits of sand to the pile. Yeah. And you know, this sand pile started in the 1800s basically. And so like wow. the, the the base, you know, the the basic idea that greenhouse gases warm the climate, the planet would be colder if we didn't have some in the atmosphere. Um, that people figured out in the 1800s, basically. And then as time passed, people started doing you know, experiments, doing math to say, well, hold on, if we added more greenhouse gases to the atmospheres, like carbon dioxide, would, shouldn't that warm the planet? And it's something I actually point out to students all the time. Like we have a, a research paper that was written in 1896 that estimates how much the planet would warm. Wow. If you doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and the answer that this the chemist is a Swedish guy named Svante Arrhenius, the answer he got was different than the answer we get today. But it's not like it was off by ten times. Yeah. So, the, the, like the core principles are there. In I mean, the thing about climate science is, like I said, it's it's not like its own branch of science exactly. It's more an outshoot of what we know about physics and chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for for the scientific community to be like to be wrong about the core idea that adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere would warm the planet, we'd have to unravel like all of physics. Yeah. Because it just it just grows out of what we know um about like how radiation moves on the planet, how energy gets transferred and things.
0: Yeah. It's not a standalone thing. No. And you know, the funny part is is when you know you have these naysayers and you have the the climate deniers and they always point to I, th- I think this was like maybe 30 or 40 years ago when a, a, a group of scientists basically said that we're heading towards this um freezing of the planet right and i think we expect scientists to always be right and when they're not you know we hold them accountable even 40 years in the making it's not like okay this was a mistake but that doesn't mean like everything we're saying or doing is is, is a mistake
1: no it's a, it's a really good point i mean and the <laughs> Science, I mean, I think one of the problems we've had over time is there's kind of, you know, the myth of the patent clerk, you know, Einstein was a patent clerk. That's how he came up with the theory of relativity. He was just working in the Swiss patent office and doing the stuff in his spare time. Uh, And so I think because that is how science gets portrayed so often, we get this idea that like individual findings, you know, one study, one scientist solves everything. And that's just not how it works. We're just adding, as I was saying before, you're kind of adding grains of sand to the pile and um, and with climate, you know and so what happens is people who are motivated, whether for you know personal identity reasons or because you're being paid to do it, you know, if you're motivated to doubt the science of climate change, you can cherry pick some study from the past and say, oh, look, in the 70s, scientists were claiming there's an ice age coming. Yeah. And it's funny because that is, um, that you were mentioning, that's this like myth that's sort of still spread around on the internet, but it was really like three new, three research papers. Yeah. It was not this big thing. And what happened is because somebody wrote about it in time magazine, it became, you know, you can find, it looks like this was this whole movement of the scientific community saying an ice age was coming and that's actually not the case, um, in, um, it's been almost, it's been, I think it was kind of thing, 1979 is when this report came out for the US government, where they gathered a bunch of scientists together to say, hey, is this thing like greenhouse gases, climate change, is this real? And they wrote a report saying, yeah, if we doubled the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere by continuing to burn coal, et cetera, the planet would warm by about three degrees. And in the past 40 years, that core thing hasn't really
0: changed that much. And that was 1979. Yeah. You know, so- <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's crazy how much we um we put our hand. You know, I feel like if it's if it's wildfires, right? If it's something that you can visibly see, then everyone's all about that. But if it's one of these slow moving, kind of invisible things that just happen over time, where we, I don't want to say we don't care, but we definitely don't put as much effort into solving. You know. Oh, well, for sure i mean think about
1: uh, so what's what is carbon dioxide from i mean uh burning any sort of form of carbon so fossil fuels a tree but like charcoal briquettes if you have a barbecue right um that's just carbon you burn it you create you know burn them they'll it, um, create carbon dioxide but we can't see the carbon dioxide and i just i'm
0: always thinking saying to people imagine if it was just visible yeah what a difference that would make yeah well what's their name um um uh, I forget the name, uh, racing extinction in the documentary, they did a beautiful thing where they used, um, this it, it, like, everything was in purple. I forget the type of camera they were using, but some sort of an infrared type yeah. of camera. And you could see all the gases they were riding around the city and you could see all the cars spewing up all the carbon and you could see people when they were coughing. It's like, you could see it. And that, that paints a completely different picture for, for humans, you know, you're like, Oh, okay. uh, That is actually happening all the time all around me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's actually, I mean, it's a funny thing. We talk about this in class a
1: lot that uh, um, if you're learning like the physics of the climate and everything um, we can see visible light because that's the type of energy, the peak amount of energy being emitted by the sun is in the visible part of the spectrum. And so we, you know, humans and other organisms evolved eyes that could sense that type of light. So we basically have these like radiation detection instruments in our head that can, fe- that can see visible light. If the sun was colder and was the temperature of the earth, it would be giving off radiation, the type of energy the earth gives off, and we would need infrared sensors to see it. And so all they are doing in there is they're using a different type, you know, it's the same type of detector we have in our heads, but they've just tuned it. To a sort of different part of the spectrum. And then you can see it. And the thing is that, you know, because um the light coming in from the sun is in that visible part of the spectrum, we can't see the other stuff. We can see the light from the sun.
0: Yeah. I wonder yeah. if that's how if, if we actually saw that on a daily basis rather than having to use these high-tech cameras, would we act differently? You know, would we have more urgency? We might, you know, one
1: of the things to think about, like uh have you ever heard of this the idea of this, this like Pacific garbage patch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So that's gotten a lot of news, the idea that there's this um large collection of garbage in the middle of the Pacific. That happens uh obviously of because Texas, right. Yeah, because of you know, waste coming off ships and off shorelines, but part of it's just the ocean, the way it circulates, and that's where things collect. That's gotten an incredible amount of um of attention because it's something you can physically see. Yeah right and so often and i deal with this uh you know i talk as a university professor spent a lot of time talking to young people you know people younger than me at least <laughs> and uh um and and often they're most concerned about the types of environmental pollution environmental damage that you can physically see so people think about plastic waste plastic in the ocean right because you know it's carbon dioxide you can't see it
0: yeah yeah it's, yeah it's um it's a tough one you know it's and and Again, it's when we have potential droughts, wildfires, um, glacier shrinking, water shortages, climate refugees, heat waves, floods, coastal erosion, um, what else sea level rises, just strongest storms, desertification, that's endless, right? Coral bleaching, Should't we is, is, are we being too alarmist? Or or should we be less, I mean, is it just causing unnecessary panic in people when they start hearing all this information? Or should we really kind of hammer it and, and, and tell this narrative more and more and more to keep people maybe panicking a little bit more and then acting on it? Or No, that's a great question.
1: Um, you know, everybody responds differently to information, right? So um, I tend to err on the side of not wanting to be too alarmist. Um, that's not because <laughs> that's mostly because of like human psychology and less so because of the actual climate projections. I mean, there are some pretty scary things being projected. One of the, uh, things that was most concerning is that we probably underestimate climate change impacts like the scientific community does, because there are things you just can't model. Right. So we can, uh, scientists can project, With this, if we continue on this trajectory of emitting greenhouse gases, how much the planet will warm, what that's going to do to sea levels, et cetera, it's hard to predict whether a war is going to break out because of that, Yeah, right? There's too many societal factors need to bring into account, but that could happen. And so in a way, climate change impacts are probably underestimated. But I do think that the story of climate change is sometimes being told backwards in which, you know, I, if you're a scientist like me, I get asked all the time by the media and everything, "Hey, what's the world going to look like in 2050?" <laughs> and what they want to hear is you know, sea level rise, like you said, coral bleaching, droughts, wildfires, etc. And and I was, you know, I think it's really important to point out what the world could look like if we reduce climate change. And so um, there are some climate impacts that are going to happen no matter what um, because of the emissions we've already put up in the atmosphere and the warming to date. Um, but the other thing is that climate change is giving us this opportunity to realize that there's another way to do all sorts of things in the world, to get off fossil fuels, to rely on renewable energy, and how that could make a much more pleasant world. I mean, I was just thinking about the fact that if we all, if um, there was no more coal burning, right, and there was, uh, and we were relying largely on electric vehicles, right, you're in a downtown street, New York City or Vancouver, or whatever, you might as well at the Corner of major intersections just have patios because the street will be quiet, electric cars don't make sound, and there'll be very little air pollution. Hmm. Right. And so, that you know, that thing you get used to of seeing the dirt on all the canopies, you know, in front of stores in New York and how it feels kind of gross on your lungs being in the city, middle of the day, that'll mostly be gone because we'll have removed the sources of it. And that's just because climate change, the sources of climate change are also the sources of most of the world's air pollution. And air pollution killed more people in the last century than the world wars combined yeah you know so there's all these good that could happen from solving it
0: there's always going to be that one guy like that's not the new york i want to live in (laughs) (laughs) i miss the dirt yeah yeah i miss the dirt (laughs) the griminess (laughs) the the spitting it's like no 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 dude go somewhere else um yeah it's 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 a you know i always hear one of the arguments is the um Financial incentives, right? Like, oh, the the Green Deal is going to cost, I don't know, whatever a trillion dollars. I don't know if I don't know if those numbers are correct, but they they keep saying a lot of money. But you know, I see a direct correlation between good business practices, meaning green ones, and just as an example, right? Ski resorts they employ directly and indirectly millions of people worldwide, from hotels to restaurants, ski instructors, um, well, engineers that build it. And many people that work in and around the resorts and a lot of the smaller resorts because of climate change. I mean, they're just, it's inevitable. They're going to have to close. They're going to have to shut down. And that's more people than coal. That's more people that that work in oil. That's that's millions and millions of people that are going to lose their jobs. And it's, I don't know, it's one of those things where they don't Look at it at the same way as a, a, when it's lost in jobs versus an actual physical job, right? Like, yo, I lost my job at the coal factory. They see that as a direct loss, but correlation between climate change and then the businesses going out, they don't quantify it the same for some reason. I don't know why.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think especially what you're getting at, it, it really speaks to some of these disconnects that go on with climate change that make it both. Um, Hard for people, uh, a lot of um, people, if you haven't been working on the subject for a while, to sort of accept the the benefits of some of the solutions, but also just hard to implement things. Is that there's just these crazy disconnects, right? Where um, you know sometimes the the sort like the source of climate change, like the source of greenhouse gas emissions, the countries it's coming from are not necessarily the places that are most impacted. Yeah, that's one of the disconnects, and then these economic disincentives that, um, you know. Switching to renewable energies would there's no reason that it should on net cost jobs, but it might move them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And so here in Canada, where I live, um, you know, we there's a, a large oil industry and there's a bit of a natural gas industry, but there the oil industry is largely in one province, yeah. and so the concern about shifting you know away from oil and towards uh, an economy based more on renewable energies, I mean, one of the concerns just simply is. Um, that the governments, the federal government struggles with is how do we do this when one province, you know, one set of people are going to be maybe hurt by the switch, but other people will benefit. Yeah. Right. And so that disconnect makes it so hard. And I think your ski example is a great one. I mean, even, um, you know, we here in, Van, uh, just a little bit North of Vancouver's Whistler Blackcomb, one of the biggest ski areas in North America. Amazing. So Whistler, because it's so, um, the the base isn't that high up but it's a very they're very five thousand five thousand foot top to bottom ski resorts the top is going to have snow for a long time yeah even in the even in in a bad climate you know even in the sort of worst projections climate trajectory it'll still be snowing at the top they'll still be able to operate but all the other local ski areas here they're too close to the uh they're too close to sea level as they you know they're going to struggle and so there's you know so this sort of unevenness of the winners and losers is I think what makes sort of addressing climate change so hard.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's um. You know, I, I love. I'm, I'm a big you know snow guy. I love snowboarding. I love being out in the mountains, uh, mountaineering, all that type of stuff. But you know, when I try to do, even in the past few years, if I go to, um, you know, just a uh, uh, one of the small ones around here in, in in New England, right? Not the bigger ones in Vermont, but New Jersey, New York, uh, Pennsylvania you know it's they don't have good ski seasons anymore they don't have a lot of snow it's a lot of uh snow making machines um it's less and less people and it it, you know on the on the on a good day it gets extremely crowded so you don't even it's not even worth going and i just feel like and the ticket sales you know obviously going down ticket prices are going down because they just they just don't have enough people and they're just in, It's just inevitable. They're just going to have to close. in. I don't know, 10, 20, 30, they could do, you know, summer stuff there, obviously, which they, they you know, they can still keep doing, but all their winter activities, eventually it just, it's not going to be cost efficient. They're just going to have to shut down. Yeah. And
1: I think, um, I think some of the consolidation in the ski industry, oh yeah there's a definitely like non-zero role of climate change in that vale resorts from colorado bought whistler blackcomb yeah. and i don't know if this was announced but it was kind of clear what was going on was it was a good idea to own a ski resort that's uh Got some high elevation terrain in Canada. Yeah, that's yeah. further north, right? Be They're good for business.
0: Offsetting. They're offsetting. Yeah, exactly. They're offsetting yeah. <laughs> their losses in other places. They're just exactly. you know, let's buy up all the big ones, and you know, one will offset the other. Yeah, there's a couple of them. Aspen, I think, uh is one that keeps buying them. And yeah, there's a few like big ones that just keep buying all the ones across the world now. It's it's a good. I'm sure it's good business for now. I just yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those. It's not the end of the world if we don't have you know, skiing, obviously it's, 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 you know, it's not on par with food and shelter, but it's one of those things where, again, it employs millions and millions of people. It's something that millions and millions of people love doing. And it just, I I don't know, it just sucks if if, if that's not something that's in the cards for, for the future.
1: Well, I'll tell you the, um, You know, some of what you're talking about is, you know, sort of we're moving to this new normal. That's what you hear people say a lot. Yeah. Um, And and really, until we, as long as we're adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, it's going to keep, the climate's going to keep warming. And so it's not so much that we're in a new normal, but the normal is constantly changing. And so what you're saying about like the local ski areas in New England, you can't trust whether they're going to be able to open or not, what's going to happen. I mean, this is the, that kind of speaks to the ultimate challenge of climate change is that. As a result of human activity, the climate's warming faster than any point, you know, in the history of civilization. And I mean, like, and that mean like humans living in communities, basically. Yeah, yeah. And with that, the real issue isn't just, isn't the total amount that the climate's warming, it's the speed. Mm-hmm. Because if it took, you know, if the climate was going to warm by two degrees Celsius and it was going to take 20,000 years, we'd be able to, we'd be able to adapt to a lot yeah. of that. Yeah. But it's just happening so fast. We can't adapt. We can't even like, there's not even a new normal that we can say, okay, this is what it's going to be like now. So let's adapt to that. But the normal's keeping keeping um, changing. And so, the, uh, and I think that's uh, the difficult, you know, long-term planning uncertainties to deal with, whether you're a ski area. Um, I talk to pension funds a lot, right? Which are one of the areas of, you know, one of the sectors of the economy where people really need to think long-term. Yeah. And uh, they take, you know, a lot of pension funds take this really seriously. Yeah, of
0: course. They're, uh, yeah. <laughs> their business is, they're going to have a lot of payouts, a lot of payouts.
1: Yeah, but also just realizing that, you know, you've
0: got people that are
1: 30 years old paying into their pension expecting to get money in 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, hold on a second. Let's, how are those investments going to be doing if they're all in oil and gas? Mm-hmm. What are they going to look like in 35 years? And So that's why there's been a lot of big uh, push for pension funds to think about climate change.
0: You know, this might be a stupid question. Although my teacher said there there are no stupid questions, but I say that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's I guess it's the teacher credo or something. Absolutely. Um, But will some countries or regions? So, for example, Russia. I know. You know, Putin said that when because the Arctic is obviously melting, there's more. um, It's easier for them to navigate through those waters where before they couldn't. And there's a lot of oil and there's a lot of natural gas to extract. And so I guess the question is, and he said that they will. And you know, Arctic, Arctic countries, I think, will probably follow suit. Um, so are there countries that are going to benefit from climate change? Oh, that's a, boy, that's a great question.
1: There are, um, it's possible, uh, but oftentimes the things that look like benefits when you take like a first cut at the problem, you're like, well, Russia and Canada, they're further north, there's some ice that's going to melt, they'll have more land, they'll have more water, should be better. Uh, when you kind of play the whole scenario out, it doesn't necessarily look so great. So, you know, same's true for Canada that, you know, that uh, um, melting of Arctic, the melting of Arctic sea ice has been opening up the Northwest Passage, boats have been able to get through in some summers. Yeah. Um, you know, the drawback of that for Canada is that now there's like sovereignty challenges Oh. To like, wait a minute, is that your waters? And then there's the challenge of, well, let's say an oil tanker does drive through there and it runs in and hits a reef, hits some rocks and spills, who's going to clean it up? Yeah. Suddenly, so actually Canada's now needing to invest more energy and more money and resources into the sort of northern planning because of this. So there's a lot of um there are companies, the countries I would say that look like they could benefit, it's not clear to me that they really will. Um Uh, I would say like in the 90s, people were saying that, uh, you know, again, more northern countries would maybe benefit just because of agriculture, that they could grow, you know, your growing seasons longer and you grow things further north. And that was definitely being said about Canada. Uh, But then if you look at how climate change has influenced the frequency and severity of droughts and wildfires, this has not been good for agriculture. Um, so, you know, so there might be some short-term benefits, but, uh, you know, with a little bit of warming, but then these feed on effects come and, uh, generally it just comes back to the thing is that the problem is it's changing faster than we can adapt. And so even if something looks like it might be good for you, if you're not adapted to it, it's not going to work well.
0: Yeah. And then I guess on the flip side, what would you say are some nations that, are going to suffer either first or more than other nations? No, also also a great question. I think it's not just
1: countries, it's also just um, regions, you know, like parts of countries. Um, so the places people usually go to first is to think of small islands um, that are close to the ocean. So I, for a number of years, I've been doing research in uh, a bunch of countries in the Pacific Islands uh, and uh, w- uh, one called the Marshall Islands and uh, one called the Republic of Kiribati. And those are places that, you know, cannot withstand much sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you can adapt locally, it'll be so prohibitively expensive. Um, That'd be hard to, they, you know, be hard to do. Uh, but I think we, we tend to look at those places uh, first. I think uh, uh, they look good on television. <laughs> they make good, uh, they make for good news stories. Beautiful island, um, But I think the impacts of, of sea level rise in, obviously in Bangladesh, where there's, you know, around a hundred million people living at pretty close to the sea level, but in all sorts of coastal cities around the world, right? Whether it's Miami, uh, New Orleans, um, Bangkok. Uh, I mean, just the, and it's not just the fact that the the ocean is supposed to rise on average, but it means that every high tide, every storm surge is higher gets more damage even you know hurricane sandy in new york i mean the storm surge from hurricane sandy if it had struck in 1880 yeah simply wouldn't have been as high there wouldn't have been as much damage right so i i I, I think a lot of what's going on within countries not only country to country yeah Yeah.
0: there you know like you said the the pacific islands are the probably the the first ones to go and and you know other islands but those are, f- are so small I feel like you know nations will be able to absorb them but like you said Bangladesh and some other countries um I think probably mostly in, in Asia that have such massive populations I mean who's going to absorb that there's nowhere to go right if 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 I think something like 40 percent I may be mistaken I think it's like 40 percent of Bangladesh is under sea level there's really nowhere for them to go like India can't accept 100 100. Plus million people, or then no other country will either. Yeah. And um, you know, I think the thing I we we shouldn't assume that that
1: that the sea level rise and land flooding hundred percent means people turn into refugees. Um, because first of all, there's like lots of opportunities for advanced planning. (laughs) So um, so that I think this idea that there'll be climate refugees is it's not wrong, but it's maybe a bit simple. Um, in that really what might happen is that the threat of sea level rise means society means, you know, countries change. So people start moving beforehand, et cetera. And in, in, uh, Kiribati's this country I've worked in in the Pacific, they were pushing this idea of, uh, for years of what's called migration with dignity, which is that we don't want to be seen as refugees, people you had to take in because we had to run away, but we want to, um, um, uh, begin slow migration, Early create communities of of Kirbis people that live in New Zealand and Australia, et cetera, so that if the day comes that people need to leave, we you know that we have a community to move to where there'll be other people that share our culture uh, and that will be accepted. And I think there'll be a lot more. Of, there'll be obviously crises that'll come in the
0: future, but there'll also be a lot of that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I just feel like that's something that the news tends to put more emphasis on because it's very, it scares people, right? Like, oh yeah, where are mm-hmm. these people going to go? And and I feel like the media likes scaring people, you know? Um, that's just something that the media, I don't know, it just keeps doing, right? It doesn't matter if it, as long as it's something catastrophic, right? Like climate refugees or if yeah. it's wildfires or if they see a physical Iceberg break off. If it's you know, if it's visual, then they'll play on it. But if it's like measures that you can do daily, if it's the not sexy stuff, quote unquote sexy stuff, then yeah. it's not going to make headlines. Well, I mean, this is—I
1: would say—this is one of the reasons you don't see more climate change blockbusters. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's this big thing going on on the planet. You would think that this would be a reason to make a bunch of movies, but the, those that have been made are usually pretty ridiculous, right? Because they have to take the science and blow it out yeah. uh, to some insane, unbelievable story like the day after tomorrow did, or there was one called Geostorm that kind of did that as well. <laughs> and because um, the reality of it is, is, is it's just a lot of years of hard work is what's necessary. And a lot of it's not very sexy.
0: No. Yeah. But, but I mean, do we have some sort of a responsibility as humans? Because at this point, we all know i mean you know there's no one where you there's no conversation that that's being had right now where two people are talking and one of them is talking about climate change the other like oh what's that i've never heard of it that it doesn't exist so is it just i don't know is it is it too difficult to get someone really into what they perceive as a, that a problem that's only going to happen 20 or 30 or 40 years from now like they i feel like there's no urgency. There's no, it's not an immediate threat to our way of living. And it's something that maybe my children will because I've heard this before from, from people older than me, like my children will deal with this when the time, like they don't, they don't think about it, you know? No. And I think, you know,
1: I'll say, so your question is sort of pointing to where I think like the communication around climate change, you know, certainly back, but going back to the 90s, but last decade as well was well-meaning but we didn't do a great job of it and in a couple of ways one of them was that there was too much of trying to thinking that you're going to motivate people by scaring them yeah right which um uh, work you know might work with some people i think it doesn't work with most um, was one and the other was it wasn't really a good job to connect climate change was too abstract it wasn't being connected to people's lives and you're seeing now scientists have clued into the fact that, oh, we should be explaining that the role climate change is playing in everyday events you see out there. Right. And so, like, you hear, um, you know, the wildfires going on in the Western, in Western US and California, right? Um, scientists have been pretty upfront in saying that, listen, climate change has played a role in these fires. You know, some of you would have got a different answer 10 years ago. Some of that is advances in the science, but a lot of it is the scientists realizing we weren't talking about it the right way. Because what would happen is like, you know, you would ask, you know, somebody would ask me, they say, oh, what's the role of climate change in this heat wave? And I was taught to give this really, um, (laughs) really narrow technical answer where I'd say, well, you know, no individual event can be attributed to climate change. But what you're seeing is what we expect to see happen more often in the future, blah, 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 and it would be boring, right? And it also wouldn't really answer the question. It was sort of like, no, but let me explain. And now scientists have realized, well, actually, you can, you know, we can say that climate change has played a role in all the extreme weather we're seeing around the world. So we need to be clear about that. So if you get asked, say, yes, climate change is playing a role. Let me explain. Yeah. You know, and just, is, and you're seeing a lot of effort by scientists and others to try to connect, you know, climate change to what's being experienced in your life and to stop making it seem like it's a problem for, you know, your great grandchildren, uh, you know, listen, a child, this is 2020, a child born today in the U S or Canada has got a life expectancy a little bit above 80 years, right? So a kid born today is going to be around in 2100 mm-hmm. statistically speaking, right? Yeah. Most of the climate projections you're going to read about most of what's done by scientists goes out to 2100. So all these worst case scenarios about how much warmer the planet would be, how much sea level rise will be higher, this stuff's going to happen in the lifetime of somebody born today. So it's not about future generations; those generations are here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's but true. I think it's just not explained well. And 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 this is where they also the disinformation part. You know, every time I'll hear about the wildfires. And also people that maybe don't understand like how everything is connected, like the wildfires that happen in the US, that the the smoke that goes up. I mean, I even saw the smoke here in Connecticut on the other side of the country. And that goes into Greenland. The the soot goes on the ice, right? And then that radiates more heat, causing more heat. It's just, it's all cyclical. And the pushback I saw as far as the wildfires was, it's not climate change, it's uh, it's not proper um, forest management on behalf of the Californian, uh, you know, of California. The, the, they're just they're just not doing a good job with forest management.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think what you're pointing to, not just specifically about forest man- about the sort of forest management versus climate, is that the the challenge with trying to connect climate change and and any sort of extreme event, a heat wave, a fire, a flood. Is that you know weather events have multiple there's multiple things driving them, yeah. right? You know, and certainly like air pollution, smoke, et cetera. There's going to be multiple things, You know, what leads to a fire? There's multiple things driving them, and I think we're um, there's this expectation in the world that science is going to give you a clear answer. It's like yes or no, right? But in fact, it's more something like climate change was about forty percent of this, the other thirty percent was this, et cetera, and so the conversation that was going on around uh, forced management versus climate change was kind of silly because it was creating this false binary as if only you could only answer one of them now there's a lot of politics behind why that happened yeah which uh, you know mostly that the you know president Trump refuses to admit anything's related to climate change um Able to and yeah. um but it speaks to something that literally we talk about in like undergrad classes about climate change but one of the challenges with this problem, and then one of the reasons people have had you know, the world's been slow to to come to grasp how important it is and to believe it and everything, is that the climate and the weather has just gotten multiple causes. And so anytime you look at an individual went, climate change has played a role, but it's not the only
0: thing that played a role. Yeah. Yeah. So so I mean, Simon, just give it to us straight. Forget social issues, right? What is our trajectory right now? If we keep you know, just so people can get a better understanding. We keep on the trajectory that we're on right now, business as usual, you know, we don't adhere to potentially, I don't know, the the IPCC and maybe other things that we could be doing to, to, to put more renewable energy out. All this, all the stuff that we know that we should be doing, business as usual, what's our trajectories, you know, for the next 30 years? So for the next 30 years, um,
1: Whatever trajectory we're on, the the picture of the next 30 years won't be that different. But what we choose in the next 30 years in terms of emissions is going to influence what happens after that. Okay. Because a lot of what's to come, we've already done. We're looking in the next 30 years, you know, you know, at around another degree of warming. You're going to start seeing things like uh, within the next 30 years, it's likely there'll be a summer. Um, it's possible there'll be a summer where there's no ice in the Arctic. Wow. Or almost none. Um, you know, maybe it won't be completely zero. Um, that's possible, but not for sure. You're looking at a degree of warming. And then all of these impacts you're seeing like more heat waves, forest fires, et cetera, that's going to continue in 30 years. Um, those, those will just sort of get more extreme. Um, in 30 years, the sea level, right? sea level could go up by about a foot. It's a lot, which, yeah, it sounds like a lot. And one of the things it's, I'm always trying to tell people this, you know, you think, oh, 30 years, what's the big deal? If you were buying a house today. Right. Yeah. Like if you're 40 years old or 35 years old, and you're like, we're gonna buy our first house, we're gonna have it for 30 years, and then when we retire, we'll sell it and we'll downsize. Right. If you bought a house that's close to the shore, by the time you start to sell it to downsize, your house value is gonna have plummeted. So it's like a bad investment now. Right. And so I think these things that look even just 30, you know, 30 years off, they they affect decision making today. Right. Like we, you know especially around sea level rise, like anything, um, certainly places like Miami, right. And in, in New York city, to some degrees, and, and, uh, parts of new England as well, you know, anything infrastructure wise, roads, hospitals, bridges, everything, you know, you're not building them for now. You're building them to be there for decades. Yeah. And so we need to take this into account in our decisions. Yeah.
0: And, you know, we had, um, just as, as like almost as, cause when you, I think when you live in a city, Maybe you don't feel it as much because you're in a way you're sealed off from from, you know, the environment, from natural calamities because it's all high rises and stuff. But like just an example, I'm I'm here in Connecticut and we had a storm about a month ago that just flattened half the state. I mean, they're talking about trees down everywhere into houses, no electricity, no Wi-Fi for like a couple of weeks. Right. Like we had to leave. There's no electricity here. And when you're out here, you realize, oh, okay, like I'm very susceptible to what the elements around me dictate. I'm, you know, I'm not the master of my domain. I, you know, I, if, if, if there's a massive storm and then all of a sudden there's no electricity, there's no heat, there's no um, AC, there's no, I can't call anyone. There's no um, street lights out. That's pitch black out here. Right. And there's a lot of animals here. We had a bear in our backyard about a week ago. Wow. So, you know think about that times, I don't know, 10 times a hundred when you have serious things that climate change could accelerate. It's, I I just don't know why it's such an easy one plus one for me. I don't know why it's not for everyone else or for some people at least. Yeah. I mean, what you're speaking, and it sounds like what you're talking about really is this, it's this thing that
1: climate change isn't necessarily Like it's not inherently a bad thing. The problem is if it's changing faster than we can adapt. right? And so you think, you know, if you're living in a city, you can feel pretty insulated from the ups and downs of the weather and the climate, right? But not if the weather and climate's shifting and you're having experiences you haven't had before, right? And, um, you know, one like the climate projections from my hometown of Toronto, right? If we do nothing about uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions, we continue sort of business as usual. Mm -hmm. By the end of the century, the summers in Toronto will be sort of like the summers in central Florida, Really? Right, which is just like a shocking change. And I point that out to people all the time. And they're like, wait, how could that be true? I'm like, oh, actually, just look at the climate projections. Yeah. It literally comes straight out of the models. And you just, you know, compare it. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter how insulated your city might feel right now. That's a level of change you need. You would need to be prepared for, right? And uh, um, I mean, I think, listen, the, the pandemic has sort of shown us this, that if we're not prepared for something, how hard it is to be ad- to adapt
0: quickly yeah yeah so you know I, I hear this a lot i'm 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 a little bit in 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 the venture and i'm um, just wondering is technology could technology be enough could it save us with potentially um carbon sequest- uh, uh sequestering uh carbon capturing refreezing the poles renew- all that you know water desalinations you know, for places that have droughts, uh, it seems yeah. like many are banking on technology to solve it, or at least with some of the outcomes for, for climate change. But I mean, is that enough? Is is also and also is it smart? Kind of playing God like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and so you're thinking of like the type of technologies when people are proposing, like how
1: do we counteract climate change? Like stop because
0: you Because know, some people are saying like, you know, what, what we're doing, like we're not enough. It, it's not enough. Like people aren't going to stop eating meat. They're not going to stop driving cars. We're, we should keep using coal. But let's use these technologies to off- offset that.
1: Yeah. So there's I mean, there's kind of a couple categories of the technologies to get thrown out there. One is the ones where something that tries to pull carbon dioxide out of the air. Mm -hmm. and um people call it like carbon capture or um if it comes straight out of the air direct air capture the the idea of it isn't crazy um you know like if the astronauts on the apollo spacecraft were able to survive by having a, a carbon dioxide scrubber in the spacecraft because otherwise all the breathing they were doing would have increased the CO2 levels to like toxic levels in time that inside those tiny little ships. Oh wow! So the technology is around the problem with anything like this is how much energy does it take to do it? Yeah. Right. And so right now it's very energy intensive, really expensive that we can't do it. You know, it's scale. Um, and then of course, even if we could, there would need to be some sort of incentive structure, like why, who's paying for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, so those are the like the carbon approach, and then the other approach is like, could we use the more kind of crazy sounding ideas? Is like, could we put mirrors in space? Yeah, I've heard um, that. And um, the problem with those kind of like solar geoengineering proposals, let's put uh, pollutants up in the upper atmosphere to block incoming sunlight, so that'll counteract global warming. Is I mean, the simplest way to <laughs> think about it is if we as a world can't agree on how to deal with the problem. Do you think we're going to be like you know international agreements do you think we're going to be able to come up with an international agreement to agree on doing something else like this <laughs> to counteract the first problem because you know if you decided to block incoming radiation or to um make the planet more reflective like make it whiter to reflect more incoming light um it's not directly combating <laughs> what we're doing with greenhouse gases it's kind of like going at it a different route and so it's going to have all these trickle down effects on the climate around the world. Like if we put mirrors in space, yeah, you could cool the planet off a little bit, but it wouldn't be even. And so some places would now get rainier and some places would get drier. Yeah. I just and, feel like- and like, how would the world come to agreement on this? So I think those proposals are good things for scientists to try to work on, to understand if they're possible and what it would mean. But I, I just don't see them being realistic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it is' a good idea. Like a lot of times when we, when we try to do these things again where we play god it just it doesn't the, the side effects are um unforeseen you know I, I just i don't know like for example when i you know i don't know i think it's carbon sequestering where they're putting the carbon back into the ground like right yeah is, you know how much carbon can the ground endure before i don't know there are some uh you know side effects that happen there as well i don't know could it be maybe killing the roots of tree? i have no idea like i'm not a scientist but like. Could there be something? Yeah.
1: Well, the big yeah, so the big issue um, this gets raised a lot. Like, there's two ways to think about it. One is the like, let's try to take CO2 straight out of the air, which is really hard to do. Um, the other one is like, oh, if we have a coal burning power plant, let's capture the CO2 before it gets out of the smokestack. Mm-hmm. That's a bit easier because like the air coming out of the smokestacks got such a high concentration of CO2 in it. It's a bit easier for like the chemistry to grab it. Yeah. Um, but even in that case, that only works if you can then get the coal, the, the carbon dioxide, like liquefy it or something, put it into a pipe and pipe it down into the ground somewhere that it can be held. So you're not putting into the soil, you're going to some like deep groundwater. That's like salty enough that the CO2 will get absorbed well and everything. And, you know, most of the, you know, when we built coal burning power plants, we didn't situate them, you know, we didn't choose where to build them based on yeah. the underlying geology. Yeah. Being good for this. So, um, so it's just not physically wouldn't physically work well in lots of parts of the world and then there's concerns about how much would the co2 leak back into the atmosphere i see right, so the geology of this stuff
0: is really complicated yeah. It's it sounds complicated yeah um you know again with with playing god um you know in in china back in the day mao he tried to play god and the, the four um pest campaign where he killed rats uh, flies mosquitoes and sparrows and Ended up having a famine that killed tens of millions of people because you know there were no crops. Um, we keep killing our wildlife at alarming rates. Uh, right now, I think fifty percent of all wildlife in our life in our lifetime has been completely wiped out. I mean, is there going to be a tipping point where we just hit, uh, in destru- like just destructive ecological disaster?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're seeing it, you know, w- wildlife dying out around the world, climate change is playing a role, but certainly is not the only thing. A lot of that is just us just using up habitat. Yeah. Right. Um, but you are seeing, you know, pretty devastating ecological changes, uh, in different parts of the world. We're seeing it, uh, with, uh, you know, a little bit with forest die-offs a little bit in the West because of forest fires and just heat waves. Um, but one of the best examples is in the ocean. Is it really, I mean, the world's coral reefs are a dire threat uh you know dire risk because of climate change
0: yeah
1: um at this stage um it's unlikely they won't there's not going to be very many coral reefs that look like they did 50 or 100 years ago left on the planet um it doesn't mean there'll be no corals left uh in the future but they will not be the same and you know that's not just important for for you know in north america it's mostly about people you know corals are something you see on a vacation yeah you know, going snorkeling or diving. But, you know, there's there's tens to hundreds of millions of people on tropics that defend, depend on reefs for, you know, for fish, for income, for tourism, et cetera. And, um, and also, like, they physically protect the shoreline. So if the reef degrades, you know, sea level rise will have a bigger impact on the shoreline. So, um, And so we are seeing those ecological changes happening now. Um, I think that's where the disconnect between those most responsible for climate change and those the most affected... It, you know, is most noticeable, right? The people being most affected aren't the ones with the sort of the power in the, uh, in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things where we, we, I, I think we, we, a lot of people, because again, like most people live in big cities, you don't really see animals, land animals is something you see on a Nat Geo show, or maybe when you, I don't know, go camping once in a while, it almost seems like they're not part of the equation and we forget about them, but they are, you know, they're on board with us and, and they suffer the consequences of our actions. And, you know, whether it's um, hunting or clearing land for for, you know, um, meat grazing cows or burning areas for uh, palm oil or whatever it is that we're doing or just overfishing the oceans. We just we're just decimating their habitats and, and them with the wildfires as well. Like there was this, you know, I, I'm sure you saw a video of that woman saving that poor koala in Australia it's, you know, it's heartbreaking and, and it's, you don't hear animals' stories, right? They don't have a voice. And, um, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, but when, I hope you're not hearing them at least. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe in our, maybe in our nightmares, but when, uh, when humans, you know, suffer, there's usually, or not usually, but sometimes at least there's someone to tell their story or nowadays with social media, everyone can tell their story, but animals, no one, you know, unless there's people dedicated to those to their causes, no one's telling their story. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree with you.
1: It, it, although I will say that in a funny way, uh, I'm almost a bit glad we were hearing more stories about people than animals and climate change, because I think, again, you know, 20 years ago, uh, climate change sort of uh, it's not just about the environment, right? It's about society, right? It's, yeah, it's really, you know, if you think about it, it's got more in common with other like societal challenges, like poverty than it does with other environmental challenges, because it's diffuse. There's no individual cause. We have to, you know, take long-term action with policy over time to make a difference. There's not like one pipe you can plug or anything. And, um, um, but but when it first sort of came into the public consciousness, it was brought there by environmental groups and environmental activists who were well-meaning, right? Uh, but that meant the focus so often was on polar bears, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, as, as, as a Canadian, it's, you know, I, um, we, you know, I hope that polar bears are able to survive, but I'm also more concerned about the Inuit people who live in the Arctic. Yeah. And so I think we've been kind of slow. It's happening more now to come around to to realizing that climate change, the effects of climate change um, on people weren't being we weren't paying enough attention to what it was going to mean for society. It was because it just got slotted into this category that it's like an environmental issue, and I really don't think it is. Or it's really just about the legacy, yeah. But like what what world we're going to leave behind?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the world will will survive. I mean, if if anything, like you said, you're you know, people will. Die. That's that's the danger here. Like, you know, for people like the world, it'll be fine. You know, after if we're here or not, the world will survive, you know, probably even better if we're, if we're not here. But <laughs> it's just, that's that. Yeah, it is about people. It is about saving ourselves. It's not about saving the environment. You know, by saving the environment, we actually save ourselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the Earth. I mean, listen, the, that the the thing I was saying before about the you know the the issue being that the planet, the climate's warming faster than we can adapt. We means society, but we also means most of the environment. And you know, there's you can do this down to very specific, like evolutionary biology type research, and like, including like, colleagues of mine that I've worked with on showing that look, corals can't. Like there's no way for corals to genetically or physiologically adapt fast enough to deal with climate change. Like so, we we see that in the environment, and we see that in in uh, um, in society. And you know, so I think you, you've got you've hit the nail on the head there.
0: Let me. So I want to do something. Uh, we're coming towards the end, and I want to do something to kind of. I just want people to come away with the clearest idea possible about uh, climate change here. So I want to run some of the noise and misconception that I keep hearing uh, that's out there and maybe you can dispel some of the myths that we hear. All right. All right. Sounds great. All right, cool. So I have like eight things that are the most, this is these are the ones that keep circulating the most humans and animals will adapt to climate change. Um,
1: The climate right now is warming faster than at any point since um, in the history of human civilization so since we have lived in cities and had agriculture and farms and so the it's, it's it's a complete mistake to assume that we can adapt that fast right and we can see the evidence of that around us at how severe the impacts are of extreme events like you know think about new orleans think about hurricane katrina right it was no secret to anybody that a category three storm would overtop the levees I literally learned that in graduate school is one of like the three climate disasters could happen in the U.S. And then two years later, this happened. Right. And so even
0: though we know it's coming, it doesn't mean we're going to be prepared to adapt. Plants need carbon dioxide. Therefore, we need more carbon carbon emissions.
1: Um, So it is true that plants use carbon dioxide. That's part of the natural biological carbon cycle. But what we're doing is completely separate from the biological cycle. So we're taking carbon out of like the long, deep reservoir, fossil fuels, that took millions of years to generate. And instead of that carbon naturally cycling through the planet's geology and everything you know, in the atmosphere and back in the ground in a million years, we're you know, extracting it from the ground, refining it, burning it in our cars and putting it up into the air in a couple of years. So we've completely imbalanced the system. And so carbon's got to collect somewhere, so it's collecting in the atmosphere. Now, some plants are gonna grow a little bit faster because there's more CO2 available. Uh, but there are limits to that because the, um, plants don't only use CO2, they need other nutrients. And so at some point that stops being effective. Uh, and then of course the
0: CO2 is warming the climate system and affecting the rest of the planet. Okay. All right. This is awesome. Um, okay. So let's see next one. Climate is always changing or it has changed many times in the past before humans began burning coal uh, coal and oil. So there's no reason to believe humans are causing warming today Um, that's true that
1: the climate has changed in the past. So there's two things to unpack there. One is, should we care? We should care if it's changing faster than we can respond. And that's question one. Yes, it's changing faster than we can respond, change it faster at any point in the history of human civilization. The second one is, how do we know this climate change is caused by human activities? Well, I could go through all of the the background science about the greenhouse effect and the math of all of this, but I'll give you a couple simple examples. A lot of what scientists do, climate scientists do, is look for patterns, right? And so we can look for patterns in the way the climate's warming to, as a test as to what the cause might be, right? Kind of like like a detective would, like a CSI kind of kind of thing. So if climate warming were natural, we would expect only part of the you know it was caused some natural variability. You'd par- expect only part of the system to warm. Part of the planet or just the atmosphere or just the oceans. Because if there's not extra heat being added into the system, it's got to be distributed around. But it, actually, when you look at it, the whole planet's warming, the whole atmosphere, the oceans are warming. We can see heat being absorbed by ice sheets. So, like, the entire system is warming. So, it couldn't make sense that heat's just moving around within it, right? So, there's additional heat being added. Now, where could that heat be coming from? Greenhouse gases are one option. Another one could be well, what if the sun was getting warmer? That could be a natural cause of warming. Uh, First of all, the measurements do not bear that out. And second of all, we can look at the pattern. So if the sun, let's say, were responsible for warming, we'd expect the whole atmosphere to warm up because all those little particles of things that are up there would get warmed up by more rays from the sun and the surface would also warm up. But actually, the whole atmosphere isn't warming. Only the lower part of the atmosphere is warming. The upper atmosphere is actually cooling. And where are greenhouse gases? Where are they doing their activity, absorbing energy that comes up from the planet and radiating it back? They're in the lower atmosphere. So that pattern of warming in the atmosphere is like a fingerprint that shows you it's due to greenhouse gases. There's um, one thing, and there's a whole bunch of other examples like that. One of them is that, you know, if the sun were responsible for warming, you'd expect it to warm more during the day than at night, but actually more of the warmings happened at night. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so there's all sorts of like really clear fingerprints. And so when people say, oh, scientists don't know, they they're just, it's all models. They claim it's due to due to, you know, it could be nature. They're those folks aren't really paying attention to any of the science. The scientists is really clear on
0: this. This is fascinating. Okay. Um, atmospheric water vapor is the heat-trapping gas that is primarily responsible for global warming. Um, so that's interesting. That is that's wrong.
1: But it is what a lot like you'll find with a lot of sort of climate science myths online or just sort of out there in the public is that what's happened is somebody has taken uh, something from another bit of science and sort of either accidentally or purposely manipulated it to make a different argument. Yeah. And so the greenhouse effect is a natural thing. The planet is like 33 degrees warmer Celsius, I should say, Canadian. Um, then I'm also a scientist. So, um, uh, warmer than it would be without the greenhouse effect. Like if the greenhouse effect wasn't a real thing, there'd be no life on the surface of the planet. It would be a frozen ball, right? So that natural greenhouse effect is caused by a few different gases in the atmosphere, water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane. And it turns out water vapor is the biggest driver of the natural greenhouse effect. But the enhancement of the greenhouse effect That's the major driver of CO two. Two thirds of it is CO two. By adding more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we're driving the green. um, That's the main driver of of our enhancement of the greenhouse effect and global warming. By doing that, when you warm the air, it allows more water vapor, uh, more water evaporate and be held in the air, and that causes even more warming. So it's like a like a run on effect as a result. Um, Just in the same, like the think about is you know on a cold day the air is never very moist. Right there, can't hold much water, and so by we're having CO2 warming the planet, and because the CO2 warms the planet, more water vapor is getting up into the planet, into the atmosphere, warming the planet even more. But CO2 is the driver.
0: Okay, there is no scientific consensus on the existence or causes of, glo- of global climate change. Um,
1: that's just, I mean, that's just absolutely wrong. Uh, there's been a scientific consensus on uh carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels driving climate change since the 70s um and uh there have been multiple studies where scientists around the world have been polled on this and given their responses and they all come with the same result that it's like between 97 and 100% of scientists who actually work on the subject not anybody with a scientific degree people who work on the subject yeah and what's important about saying that there's been a number of studies is that replication is really the key to science. The more and more, you know, you um, a scientist puts out a study and then somebody else tries to challenge it. And so people like, go, I don't believe that there's a consensus. I'm going to go assess it myself. They keep getting the same result because scientists do agree on this. And the thing to point out is that we have, you know, this, uh, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was created in the 80s um, by the United Nations at the behest of the Reagan administration, who wanted to make sure this was being properly assessed by the world scientists. And so each, it's not a permanent, a fixed group of people. It's every time there's a report being drawn, it takes about two years to work on one of the reports. Scientists are appointed by governments around the world. They work on these reports, assessing what's known. They don't do anything original. They just assess what's out there, like what's published. And then the world scientists can all comment on it and they have to respond to all those comments so it's, it's an exhaustive two year process to put out these reports and those you know show this incredibly clear consensus and it's a different set of authors each time so i don't know how else to, to put it across but these claims that there's not a consensus in the community it's just they're just not true
0: and and whoever wants to there's a brilliant documentary merchants of doubt um it it talks about this it shows exactly that there is a consensus 97 i think now it's even 99% so watch the documentary; it goes into detail. Um, all right, two last ones: uh, the temperature record is rigged or unreliable. Um, well, first of all, it's not rigged; <laughs> and it's
1: not unreliable. So, so I think that 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 claim is thinking of like temperature records from like weather stations, right? Yeah. So, first thing to know is that there's no simple way to take the planet's temperature. Right, So what, what um, the instrumental record, like from weather stations, is based on averaging data together from weather stations around the world. And of course, not everybody's going to agree on how to base, best do this like complicated spatial average. And so a whole bunch of different groups of scientists have done this, and they all come up with same results. Again, replication being the most important thing. A group that thought that argued, oh, we don't believe the temperature record. We think we don't trust those other scientists. So there's a group um, led by a professor at Berkeley that said, I don't buy all of this. I'm gonna get money, hire a bunch of people. We're gonna redo it. Mm-hmm. They got money. They got money from the Koch Foundation, the Koch Foundation, yeah. right? the funders uh, of climate denial, basically. Okay. Um, presumably hoping they'd find a different result. This project called Berkeley Earth. You can look it up online. They went through all of this effort, they did all of this work and they got almost an identical result <laughs> So it's the temperature records reliable. And honestly, even if we'd never invented the mercury thermometer, we would have evidence that the climate is changing because you can physically see it. Yeah. Glaciers receding, uh, uh, animals, mi- animals migrating, things moving with elevation. Um, there's all this actual physical evidence of the climate changing.
0: Yeah, it's like that. Um, there's a funny, not funny, I mean, sad, but there's a documentary about flat earthers on Netflix. I think I saw it like a year or two ago. <laughs> and they want to run their own tests and they run this test. And then literally like the movie ends with them running this test, what they've been trying to do for months to prove that the earth is actually flat. And then the test comes out that it's not. <laughs> and then the movie ends. And But literally like you see the guy, he's looking through this pinhole and he's like, oh shit. <laughs> like you realize that he's a dummy. Well, but you know what, though,
1: I'll say, okay, they probably should have accepted the earth was not flat, Yes, (laughs) but there's nothing wrong with skepticism, right? Like scientists are taught to be skeptics. I mean, I'm taught to be a skeptic. So if I see a new piece of research comes out, I'm like, all right, I want to test that myself Mm -hmm. to see whether if you change one of their assumptions, do you get a different result, Yeah, right? And the key thing I'm pointing out isn't that there was one scientist that found, oh, The temperatures have been increasing since the Industrial Revolution. It's that every time scientists try to redo the analysis, they get the same result. Mm -hmm. That's what really matters.
0: Yeah. The problem is most people just sit and write comments on social media, and they don't really go out and do any, any, like this was, yeah, this was a funny one because these people have, I just, (laughs) you know, they dedicate their lives to putting out this information they have podcasts they have youtube shows they have followers they it's just it's mind-boggling anyway and they miss
1: the the the, the assumption that the first thing people tell them is like well just watch a boat drive (laughs) off the sea and wonder why the mass disappears below the horizon
0: yeah there's just it's yeah or or just find that that place where like because they say oh what is their thing i think that we're covered by some sort of uh a globe, uh, I don't know, something that doesn't allow us to fall off the edge. I don't know. It's so stupid. <laughs> Never mind. Um, you know, often I'll see people conflating weather and climate and they'll be like, look, it's cold outside. Therefore, global warming is a myth or a hoax. And, you know, there's that famous um, Jim uh, Inhofe moment where he's in on the Senate standing there and he's like, look, there's a snowball. And he's literally got a snowball in his hand and this is like it's cold outside, therefore climate change doesn't exist. And he's laughing as if like, you know, he made this amazing, uh, <laughs> he found this unbelievable proof. So maybe, yeah, explain the difference to people. <laughs> well, the, you know, climate and
1: weather are are different things. Uh, so weather is, the old, the, the old saying about it is, um, the climate is what you expect and the weather is what you get. Oh. And so the weather is like the time varying change in the local conditions. Whereas the climate is the average range of conditions. So I could tell you what the climate of Vancouver um, is in October, you know, it'd be a range of temperatures usually experienced, what fraction of the days it tends to rain. But then there's like, you know, that it happens to be warmer than usual outside today. That's the weather, right? And so one of the things um, th- to, to understand is that like the physics used by meteorologists and by climate scientists have similarities, but it's just the scale at which they're talking is different. So we can't predict the weather more than 10 to 14 days out because it's just too chaotic. You're trying to get something really precise for a local place. But we can try to predict under a certain scenario what the climate might look like 50 years from now because we're not trying to tell you what the weather would be on any given day. We're just trying to say, well, in the 2050s, this is on average what the winter would look like. And this is the range of conditions you might get. But no climate model is going to uh, produce a result for January 15th at 5 p.m. And say, that's exactly what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Hopefully, Jim Inhofe listens to this. Maybe the, maybe he'll know the <laughs> difference finally. And listen, Jim Inhofe is senator from Oklahoma, right? It's Oklahoma. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. He
1: um, has been, you know, uh, coal State, he has been a long longtime uh, climate uh, denialist. He's been fighting the science of climate change for years. But if you dig into it and you pin him down and you find some of these old interviews, he'll admit why he does it. That so it's money. not about science. It's so just money. about- yeah it's it's just he's it's just dissonance yeah he's worried about the effect climate action would have on the industries he cares about
0: yeah yeah it sucks that people put financial gain over and it's not even you know I'm not saying you should be some purist and oh I'm only making money if you know it's not harming anybody but you know it's to a point where you see that you know coal uh coal some parts of oil um I don't know Plastics, a lot of these are going in a different direction. Like coal is is not going to last for long. Why keep putting your money? Why keep putting these myths out? Like history is not gonna, not gonna paint you very well in in fifty years. You're not going to be painted as the good guy, you know. And again, it's not that the you know taking climate action isn't bad for the economy,
1: but there are distributional issues that you need to think about, yeah. right? How do we make sure? I mean, no one wants to. Um, you know, people arguing to um, reduce coal use, they're not trying to hurt coal worker, workers in the coal industry. They're just suggesting, hey, let's try to figure out a way to help you transition to other work because we don't think your industry has a future.
0: Yeah. And it's not even that amount. It's like there's more ski instructors in the US than coal miners, you know. The, is that right? Yeah. yeah. The the, wow. thing, the thing that kills coal mining jobs is not renewable. It's automation. Right. For them, like they have these massive machines now, and that's what kills a lot of jobs. It's it's automation. Like there's you have machines that can do the work of a human 24 seven for a fraction of the cost. You know, no insurance, no 401ks. Why would they need humans around? You know, plus, yeah. like, why would you want to be underground getting black lung? Like th- there's just nothing good about that. Like nothing, you know?
1: I don't know. There's healthier work for sure.
0: Yeah. You know, out in the sunshine perhaps is a little bit better. Um, Simon, I want to thank you so much for educating us today. It's been, I had a lot of fun in, in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for
1: the conversation. This was great.
0: Yeah. Um, where can uh, people find you on on social media? Um,
1: I'm mostly a Twitter user, so you can find me. It's at Simon Donner. Uh, pretty easy to do. Two N's. Donner like the, uh, like the reindeer or the uh, Donner party. <laughs> Although they're not relatives, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, and I'll, I'll I'll link it in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you so much, man. I really had a blast. Thanks for this. Yeah. Take care. Take care.